The cloths that covered the tables and the serviettes arranged fanwise in the drinking glasses were literally as white as snow, and about a dozen knives and forks and spoons were laid for each person. Down the centre of the table, glasses of delicious yellow custard and cut-glass dishes of glistening red and golden jelly alternated with the vases of sweet-smelling flowers. The floor of the dining-room was covered with oilcloth, red flowers on a pale yellow background. The pattern was worn off in places, but it was all very clean and shining. Whether one looked at the walls with the old-fashioned varnished oak paper, or at the glossy piano standing across the corner near the white-curtained window, at the shining oak chairs, or through the open casement doors that led into the shady garden beyond, the dominating impression one received was that everything was exquisitely clean. The landlord announced that dinner would be served in ten minutes, and while they were waiting some of them indulged in a drink at the bar, just as an appetizer, while the others strolled in the garden, or by the landlord's invitation, looked over the house. Amongst other places, they glanced into the kitchen where the landlady was superintending the preparation of the feast, and in this place, with its whitewashed walls and its red-tiled floor, as in every other part of the house, the same absolute cleanliness reigned supreme. Yeah, it's a bit different from the Royal Café where we used to get the sack, ain't it? remarked the semi-drunk to Bill Bates as they made their way to the dining-room in response to the announcement that dinner was ready. "'Yeah, not off,' said Bill. Rushton and Diddlem and Grinder and his other friends sat at the round table near the piano. Hunter took the head of the longer of the two other tables and Crass the foot, and on either side of Crass were Bundy and Slime, who had acted with him as committee, and who had arranged the beano. Payne, the foreman carpenter, occupied the head of the other table. The dinner was all that could be desired. It was almost as good as the kind of dinner that is enjoyed every day by those persons who are too lazy to work, but are cunning enough to make others work for them. There was soup, several entrees, roast beef, boiled mutton, roast turkey, roast goose, ham, cabbage, peas, beans and sweets galore, plum pudding, custard, jelly, fruit tart, bread and cheese, and as much beer or lemonade as they liked to pay for, the drinks being an extra. And afterwards the waiters brought in cups of coffee for those who desired it. Everything was up to the knocker, and although they were somewhat bewildered by the multitude of knives and forks, they all, with one or two exceptions, rose to the occasion and enjoyed themselves famously. The excellent decorum observed being marred by one or two regrettable incidents. The first of these occurred almost as soon as they sat down, when Ned Dawson, who, although a big strong fellow, was not able to stand much beer, and not being used to it, he was taken ill and had to be escorted from the room by his mate Bundy and another man. They left him somewhat outside, and he came back in again ten minutes afterwards, much better, but looking rather pale, and he took his seat with all the others. 
The turkeys, the roast beef and the boiled mutton, the peas and the beans and the cabbage, they disappeared with astonishing rapidity, which was not to be wondered at, because they were all very hungry from the long drive, and nearly everybody made a point of having at least one helping of everything that there was to be had. Some of them went in for two lots of soup, and then for the next course, boiled mutton and ham or turkey, and then some roast beef and then some goose, a little bit more boiled mutton with a little bit more roast beef. Each of the three boys devoured several times his own weight of everything, to say nothing of numerous bottles of lemonade and champagne and ginger beer. Crass frequently paused to mop the perspiration from his face and his neck with his serviette. In fact, everybody had a good time. There was enough and to spare of everything to eat. The beer was of the best, and all the time, amidst the rattle of the crockery and the knives and forks, the proceedings were enlivened by many jests and flashes of wit that continuously kept the table in a roar. "'Here, took us over another dollar for that here white stuff, Bob,' shouted the semi-drunk to Crass, indicating the blancmange. Crass reached out his hand and took hold of the dish containing the white stuff, Instead of passing it to the semi-drunk, he proceeded to demolish it himself, gobbling it up quickly, directly from the dish with a spoon. "'Why, you're eating it all yourself, you bleeder!' cried the semi-drunk indignantly, as soon as he realised what was happening. "'Yeah, well, that's all right, matey,' replied Crass, affably, as he deposited the empty dish on the table. "'Don't matter. Plenty more where that came from. Tell the landlord to bring in another lot.' Upon being applied to the landlord, who was assisted by his daughter and two other women and two young men, brought in several more lots, and so the semi-drunk was appeased. As for the plum pudding, well, it was a fair knockout, just like Christmas. But as Ned Dawson and Bill Bates had drunk all the sauce before the pudding was served, they all had to have their first helping without any. However, as the landlord brought in another lot shortly afterwards, well, that didn't matter either. As soon as dinner was over, Crass rose to make his statement as secretary. Thirty-seven men had paid in five shillings each. That made nine pounds five shillings. The committee had decided that the three boys, that's the painter's boys, the carpenter boy and the front boy, should be allowed to come in at half price and that made it £9.12 and 6. In addition to paying the ordinary five-shilling subscription, Mr Rushton had given £1.10 towards the expenses. Loud cheers. And several other gentlemen had also given something towards it. Mr Sweater of the Cave, £1. Applause. Mr Grinder, ten shillings in addition to the five-shilling subscription. More applause. Mr. Lettum, ten shillings as well as the five shilling subscription. Applause. Mr. Didlam, ten shillings in addition to the five shillings. Cheers. Mr. Toofnuff, ten shillings as well as the five shilling subscription. And they'd also written to some of the manufacturers who had supplied the firm with materials. And they asked them to give something. Some of them had spent in half a crown. Some five shillings. Some hadn't answered at all. 
And two of them were written back to say that things was cut so fine nowadays, they didn't hardly get no profit on their stuff, so they couldn't afford to give nothing. But, well, there you go. Out of all the firms they wrote to, they managed to get 32 and sixpence together, making a grand total of £17. As for the expenses, the dinner was two and six ahead, and there were 45 of them there, so that came to £5, 12 and six. And then there was the hire of the brakes, also two and six ahead, £5, 12 and six, which left a surplus of £5, 15 to be shared out. Great applause. Which came to three shillings for each of the 37 men, and one and fourpence for each of the boys. Loud and prolonged cheers. Crass, Simon Bundy, now walked round the tables distributing the share out, which was very welcome to everybody, especially those who had spent nearly all their money during the journey from Muxborough, and when this ceremony was completed, Philpot moved a hearty voice of thanks to the committee for the manner in which they carried out their duties, which was all agreed with great acclamation. Then they made a collection for the waiters, and the three waiters, waitresses, which amounted to eleven shillings, for which the host returned thanks on behalf of the recipients, who were all smiles. Then Mr Rushton requested the landlord to serve drinks and cigars all round. Some had cigarettes, and teetotalers had lemonade or ginger beer, and those who didn't smoke themselves took the cigar all the same, and gave it to someone else who did. When all was supplied, there suddenly arose loud cries of, Order! Order! And it was seen that Hunter was upon his feet. As soon as silence was obtained, Misery said that he believed that everyone there present would agree with him when he said that they should not let that occasion pass without drinking the elf of their esteemed and respected employer, Mr. Rushton. Hear, hear. Some of them had worked for Mr. Rushton on and off for many years, and as far as they was concerned, it was not necessary for him, Mr. Hunter, to say much in praise of Mr. Rushton. Hear, hear. They knew Mr. Rushton as well as he did himself, and to know him was to esteem him. Cheer, yeah. As for the new hands, although they didn't know Mr. Rushton as well as the old hands did, he felt sure that they would all agree that as no one could wish for a better master. Loud applause. He had much pleasure in asking them to drink Mr. Rushton's health. And everyone rose. Musical honours, chaps, shouted Crass, waving his glass and leading off the singing, which was immediately joined in with great enthusiasm by most of the men. The semi-drunk conducted the music with his table knife. For he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow, and so say all of us, so say all of us, for he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow, he's a jolly good fellow, and so say all of us. Now, ah, three cheers, Shelley Krauss, leading off. Hip, hip, hooray! Hip, hip, hooray! Hip, hip, hooray! Everyone present drank Russian's health, or at any rate went through the motions of doing so, 
but joined the roar of the cheering and the singing that proceeded. Several of the men stood with expressions of contempt or uneasiness upon their faces, silently watching the enthusiasts, or looking at the ceiling, or even at the floor. "'Well, I will say this much,' remarked the semi-drunk as they all resumed their seats. He'd taken several drinks during the dinner, besides those that he'd taken on the journey. "'I will say this much. Although I did have a little misunderstanding with Mr. Hunter when I was working at the Café Royal, I must admit that this is the best firm that's ever worked under me.' The statement caused a great shout of laughter, which— However, died away as Mr. Rushton came and rose to acknowledge the toast to his health. He said that he had now been in business for nearly sixteen years, and this was, he believed, the eleventh outing which he'd had the pleasure of attending. And during all that time, the business had steadily progressed and had increased in volume from year to year, and he hoped and believed that the progress made in the past would be continued in the future. Here, here. Of course, he realised that the success of the business depended very largely upon the men, as well as upon himself, and he did his best in trying to get work for them, and it was necessary, if his business was to go on and on and prosper, that they should also do their best to get the work done when he had it secured for them. Here, here. The masters could not do without the men and the men could not live without the masters. Here, here! It was a matter of division of labour. The men worked with their hands, and the masters worked with their brains, and one was of no use without the other. He hoped the good feeling which had hitherto existed between himself and his workmen would always continue, and he thanked them for the way in which they had responded to the toast of his health. Loud cheers greeted the conclusion of this speech, and then Crass stood up and said that he begged to propose the health of Mr. Hunter. Ear, ear. He wasn't going to make a long speech, as he wasn't much of a speaker. Cries of, yeah, you're all right, go on. But then he felt sure that he would all agree with him, and he said that next to Mr. Rushton, there wasn't no one of the men who had more respect and liking for than Mr. Hunter. Cheers. A few weeks ago, when Mr. Hunter was laid up, many of them began to be afraid as he was going to lose him, and he was sure that all the hands was glad to have his opportunity of congratulating him on his recovery. Here, here. And of wishing him the best of health in the future, and of hoping as he would be spared to come to a good many more beanos. Loud applause greeted the conclusion of Crass's remarks, and once more the meeting burst into song. For he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow. And so say all of us, hip hip hooray, hip hip hooray. And when they all had done with the cheering, Nimrod rose. His voice trembled a little as he thanked them for their kindness, and he said that he hoped to be deserving of their goodwill. He could only say that as he was sure, as he'd always tried to be fair and considerate to everybody. Cheers! That he would now repeat, request the landlord to replenish their glasses. 
Here, here. As soon as the drinks were served, Nimrod again rose and said that he wished to propose the health of their visitors, who had so kindly contributed to their expenses. Mr. Lettham, Mr. Diddlem, Mr. Toonarth, and Mr. Grinder. Cheers! And they were very pleased and proud to see them there. Here we are. And they were sure the men would agree with him when he said that Messrs. Lettham, Diddlem, Toonarth, and Grinder were jolly good fellows. To judge from the manner in which they sang the chorus and cheered, it was quite evident that most of the hands did agree. And when they led off, Grinder rose to reply on behalf of those included in the toast. He said that it gave them much pleasure to be there and to take part in such pleasant proceedings, and that they were glad to think that they were able to help to bring it about. It was very gratifying to see the good feeling that existed between Mr. Rushton and his workmen, which was as it should be, because masters and men were really fellow workers. The masters did the brainwork, and the men planned work, and they were both workers together, and their interests were the same. He liked to see men doing their best for their master, and knowing that their master was doing his best for them. And that was not only a master, but a friend. And that he, Grinder, liked to see master and men pulling together, and doing their best, and realising that their interests were identical. Cheers! If only all masters and men would do this, then they would find themselves and everything would go on all right, and there would be more work and there would be less poverty. Let the men do their best for their masters, and the masters do their best for their men, and they would find that that was the true solution to the social problems, and not all this silly nonsense that was talked about by people who went around with red flags. Cheers and laughter. Most of those fellows were chaps who were just too lazy to work for their living. Here, yeah, yeah. here. They could take it from him that even if the socialists got the upper hand, there'd be just a few of the heartful dodgers who would get all the cream and there'd be nothing left but hard work for all the rest. Here, yeah, yeah. here. And what all those agitators was after, they wanted them, his hearers, to work and to keep them in idleness. Here, here. On behalf of Mr. Diddlem, Mr. Toonarf and Mr. Letterman himself, he thanked them for their good wishes, and he hoped to be with them on a similar occasion in the future. Loud cheers greeted the termination of his speech, but it was obvious from some of the men's faces that they resented Grinder's remarks. These men ridiculed socialism and regularly voted for the continuance of capitalism, yet they were also disgusted and angry with Grinder as well. There was also a small number of socialists, not more than half a dozen altogether, who did not join in with the applause, and these men were sitting at the end of a long table presided over by pain. None of them had joined in any of the applause and greeted the speeches, and so far neither of them had made any protest either. Some of them turned very red as they listened to the concluding sentences of Grinder's oration, and others laughed, but none of them said anything. They knew before they came that there was sure to be a lot of jolly good fellow business and 
speech-making, and they'd all agreed together beforehand to take no part one way or the other, and to refrain from openly dissenting about anything that might be said, but they'd not anticipated anything quite so strong as this. When Grinder sat down, some of those who applauded him began to jeer at the socialists. "'Yeah, what have you got to say to that, then?' they shouted. "'That's up yours, eh? Yeah. "'They haven't got nothing to say now, have they, eh? Yeah. "'When did you come up and get yourself and make yourself a speech, then?' This last appeared to be a very good idea to those Liberals and Tories who had not liked Grinder's observations, so they all began to shout, "'Owen! Owen! Owen! Come on here! Get up and make a speech!' Be a man, so on. Several of those who had been loudest in applauding Grinder also joined in the demand that Owen should make a speech, because they were certain that Grinder and the other gentlemen would be able to dispose of all his arguments. But Owen and all the other socialists made no response except to laugh. So presently Crass tied a white handkerchief on a cane walking stiff that belonged to Mr. Diddlem and stuck it in the vase of flowers that stood on the end of the table where the socialist group was sitting. When the noise had in some measure ceased, Grinder again rose. When I made the remarks as I did, I didn't know there was any socialists here. I could tell from the look of you that most of you had more sense. At the same time, I'm rather glad I said what I did, because it just shows you what sort of chaps... These socialists are. They're pretty artful. They know when to talk and when to keep their mouths shut. That's what they like, is to get hold of a few ignorant working men in the workshop or the public house, and then they can sit by the mile, regular shop lawyers, you know what I mean? I'm writing everyone, um, I'm writing everyone else's wrong, like, yeah? Laughter. You know the sort of thing I mean? When they find themselves in the company of educated people, what knows a little more than they does themselves, and who isn't likely to be misled by a lot of claptrap, why then, mum's the word. So next time you hear any of these shop lawyer arguments, you'll know how much it's worth. Most of the men were delighted with this speech, which was received with much laughing and knocking on the tables. They remarked to each other that Grinder was a smart man. He'd got the socialist weighed up, just about right, to an ounce. Then it seemed that Barrington was on his feet facing Grinder, and a sudden awe-filled silence fell. Well, it may or it may not be true, began Barrington. The socialists always know when to speak and uh, when to keep their mouths shut. But the present occasion hardly seems a suitable one to discuss such subjects. We are here today as friends, and we want to forget our differences and enjoy ourselves for a few hours. But, after what Mr Grinder has said, I am quite ready to reply to him, to the best of my ability. The fact that I am a socialist, that I am here today as one of Mr Rushton's employees, should be an answer to that charge that socialists are too lazy to work for a living and has to take advantage of the ignorance and simplicity of working men and try to mislead them with a nonsensical claptrap. It would have been 
more to the point that Mr. Grinder had taken some particular socialist doctrine and proved it to be untrue or misleading, instead of adopting the cowardly method of making vague general charges which he can't substantiate. He would find it far more difficult to do that than it would be for a socialist to show that most of what Mr. Grinder himself has been telling us is nonsensical claptrap of the most misleading kind. He tells us that the employers work with their brains and the men work with their hands. Well, if it's true that no brains are required to do manual labour, then why put idiots into an imbecile asylum? Why not let them do some of the handwork for which no brains are required? As they're idiots, they'd probably be willing to work even less than the ideal living wage. If Mr. Grinder had ever tried, he would know that manual workers have to concentrate their minds and their attention on their work, or they wouldn't be able to do it at all. He talks about employers not being able to be only the masters, but friends of their workmen. It's also more claptrap, because he knows as well as we do that no matter how good or benevolent an employer may be, no matter how much he might desire to give his men good conditions. It's impossible for him to do so because he has to compete against other employers who do just that. It is the bad employer, the sweating slave-driving employer, who sets the pace, and the others have to adopt the same methods, very often against their inclinations, or they wouldn't be able to compete with him. And if any employer today were to resolve to pay his workmen not less wages than he would be able to live upon in comfort himself, then he would not require them to do more work in a day than he himself would like to perform every day of his own life. Mr Grinder knows full well, as we do, that such an employer would be bankrupt in a month, because he'd not be able to get any work except by taking it at the same price as the sweaters and the slave drivers. He also tells us that the interests of masters and men are identical, but if an employer has a contract, it's to his interest to get the work done as soon as possible, and the sooner it's done, the more profit he's going to make. But the more quickly it's done, the sooner will the men be out of employment. So how then can it be true that their interests are identical? Again, let us suppose that an employer is, say, 30 years of age when he commences business that he carries it on for 20 years. Let's assume that he employs 40 men, more or less regularly, during that period, that the average age of these men is also 30 years at the time the employer commences his business. At the end of the 20 years, it usually happens that the employer has made enough money to enable him to live for the remainder of his life in ease and comfort. But uh, what about the workmen? All through those 20 years, they have earned but a bare living wage. They've had to endure such privations as those who are not already dead and they're broken in health. And in the case of an employer, there has been 20 years of steady progress towards ease and leisure and independence. In the case of the majority of men, there were 20 years of deterioration, 20 years of steady, continuous and hopeless progress towards physical and mental inefficiency towards a scrap heap, the workhouse, and premature death. What is it all about? It's false, misleading, nonsensical claptrap to say that their interests are identical with those of the employers. 
Such talk as this is not likely to deceive any but children or fools, and we are not children, but it's very evident that Mr. Grinder thinks that we are fools. Occasionally it happens, though one or more of the hundred different circumstances over which he has no control, or through some error of judgment, that after many years of laborious mental work as an employer, he's overtaken by misfortune, and he finds himself no better or even worse off than when he started. But these are exceptional cases, and even if he becomes absolutely bankrupt, he's no worse off than the majority of workmen anyway. At the same time, it's quite true that the real interests of employers and workmen are the same, but not in the sense that Mr. Grinder would have us believe. Under the existing system of society, but a very few people, no matter how well off they may be, can be certain that they or their children will not eventually come to want and even those who think that they are secure themselves find their happiness diminished by the knowledge of the poverty and the misery that surrounds them on every side. In that sense, only, is it true that the interests of masters and men are identical, for it is to the interests of all, both rich and poor, to help to destroy a system that inflicts suffering upon the many and allows true happiness to none. It's in the interests of all to try to find a better way. Here, Krauss jumped up and interrupted, shouting out that they hadn't come here to listen to a lot of speech-making, a remark that was greeted with unbounded applause by most of those present. Loud cries of, Here, here! resounded throughout the room, and the semi-drunk suggested that someone should sing a song. The men had clamoured for a speech from Owen, and said nothing and Mr. Grinder had been feeling rather uncomfortable and secretly glad of the interruption. The semi-drunk suggesting that someone should sing a song was received with unqualified approbation by everybody, including Barrington and the other socialists, who desired nothing better than that the time should be passed in a manner suitable to the occasion. The landlord's daughter, a rosy girl of about twenty years of age, in a pink print dress, sat down at the piano, and the semi-drunk, taking his place at the side of the instrument and facing the audience, sang the first song with appropriate gestures, the chorus being rendered enthusiastically by the full strength of the company, including Misery. He was by this time slightly drunk from drinking gin and ginger beer. Come, come, come and have a drink with me down at the old ball and bush. Bum, 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 bum. Come, come, come and shake hands with me down at the old ball and bush, bush, bush. Watch hear me with a little German band, foldy diddle do. Come and take hold of me and. Come, come and have a drink with me down at the old ball and. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Protracted knocking on the tables greeted the end of the song. As the semi-drunk drew no other excerpt except odd verses and choruses, he called upon Crass for the next, and that gentleman accordingly sang, Work, boys, work, to the tune of Tramp, 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 the boys are marching. As the song at the Marseille of the Tariff Reform Party voicing it as does the highest ideals of Tory workmen of the country. It was unqualified success, because most of them were Conservatives. Now, I'm not a wealthy man, but I lives upon a plan. 
What will render me and happy as a king, and if you follow me, I'll sing as you now, for time you know is always on the wing. Work, boys, work and be contented, so long as you've enough to buy a meal. And if you will but try, you'll be wealthy by and by. If only you'll put your shoulder to the wheel. Altogether, boys, shouted Grinder, who was taking a strong tariff reformer, and was delighted to see that most of the men were of the same way of thinking. And the boys roared out the chorus once more. Work, boys, work and be contented, so long as you've enough to buy a meal. For if you will but try, you'll be wealthy by and by, if you'll only put your shoulder to the wheel. As they sang the words of this noble chorus, the Tories seemed to become inspired with lofty enthusiasm. It's of course impossible to say for certain, but probably as they sang there rose before their exalted imaginations a vision of the past, and looking down the long vista of the years that were to gone, they saw that from their childhood there had been years of poverty and joyless toil. They saw their fathers and mothers wearied and broken with privation and excessive labour, sinking unhonoured into the welcomed oblivion of the grave. And then, as a change came over the spirit of their dream, they saw the future with their own children travelling along the same weary road to the same kind of goal. It's possible that visions of this character were conjured up in their minds by the singing, for the words of the song gave expression to their ideal of what human life should be. That was what they all wanted, to be allowed to work like brutes for the benefit of other people. They didn't want to be civilised themselves. They intended to take good care that their children they had brought up in the world should never enjoy the benefits of civilization either. As they often said, Yeah, well, it would water our children that they shouldn't be made to work for their betters, eh? They're not gentry children, are they? They're good things in life was never meant for the likes of them. Let them work. That's what the likes of them was made for. And if we only get tariff reform for them, there'll always be sure of plenty of it. Not only full-time, but overtime. And as for education, travelling in foreign parts and enjoying life and all such things as that, they was never meant for the likes of our children. They were meant for gentry's children. Our children is only like so much dirt compared to gentry's children. That's what the likes of us is made for, to work for gentry, so they can have plenty of time to enjoy themselves. And the gentry is made to have a good time so as the likes of us can have plenty of work. And there were several more verses, and by the time they had sung them all, the Tories were in a state of wild enthusiasm. Even dead Dawson, who had fallen asleep with his head pillowed on his arms on the table, roused himself up at the end of each verse, and after having joined in the chorus, went to sleep again. At the end of the song, they gave three cheers for tariff reform and plenty of work, and then Crass, who was the singer of the last song, had the right to call upon the next man nominated Philpot, who received an ovation when he stood up, for he was a general favourite. He never did no harm to nobody, and he was always willing to do 
anyone a good turn whenever he had the opportunity. Sounds of good old Joe resounded through the room as he crossed over to the piano and in response to numerous requests for the old song he began to sing the flower show. Whilst walking out the other night not knowing where to go I saw a bill upon a wall about a flower show and so I thought the flowers I'd go and see to pass away the night and when I got into that show it was a curious sight so with your kind intention and a little of your aid tonight some flowers I'll mention which I hope will never fade tonight some flowers are mentioned which I hope will never fade there were several more verses from which it appeared that the principal flowers in the show were the rose, the thistle and the shamrock when he'd finished the applause was so deafening and the demands for an encore so persistent that to satisfy them he sang another old favement won't you buy my pretty flowers? Ever coming, ever going, men and women hurry by, heedless of the teardrops gleaming in her sad and wistful eye. How her little heart is sighing, though the cold and dreary hours only listen to her crying. Won't you buy my pretty flowers? When the last verse of this song had been sung five or six times, Philpot exercised his right of nominating the next singer and called upon Dick Wantley, who with many suggestive gestures and grimaces sang, Put Me Amongst the Girls, and afterwards called upon Payne, the foreman carpenter, who gave I'm the Marquis of Camberwell Green. There was a lot of what the music hall artist called business attached to the song, as he proceeded, Payne, who was ghastly pale and very nervous, went through a lot of galvanic motions and gestures, bowing and scraping and sliding about and flourishing his handkerchief in an imitation of the courtly graces of the Marquis. During this performance, the audience maintained an appalling silence, which so embarrassed Payne that before he was halfway through the song, he had to stop because he couldn't remember the rest. However, to make up for his failure, he sang another called We Must All Die Like the Fire in the Grate. This was also received in a very lukewarm manner by the crowd, and some of them laughed, and others suggested that if he couldn't sing any better than that, the sooner he was dead, well, the better. This was followed by another Tory ballad, the chorus being as follows. His clothes may be ragged, his hands may be soiled, but where's the disgrace for bread he has toiled? His art is in the right place, deny it no one can. The backbone of old England is the honest working man. After a few more songs it was decided to adjourn to a field at the rear of the tavern to have a game of cricket. Sides were formed, Rushton, Diddlem, Grinder, and the other gentlemen taking part, 
as if they were only common people, and while the game was in progress, the rest played ringquoits or reclined on the grass watching the players. On the remainder, amused themselves drinking beer and playing cards and charabni in the bar parlour, or taking walks around the village sampling the beer at the other pubs, of which there were three. The time passed in this manner until seven o'clock, the hour which had been arranged to start on the return journey. But about a quarter of an hour before they set out, an unpleasant incident occurred. During the time that they were playing cricket, a party of glee singers consisting of four young girls and five men, three of whom were young fellows, and the other two being rather elderly, possibly the fathers of some of the younger members of the party, came into the field and sang several part songs for their entertainment. Towards the close of the game, most of the men had assembled in this field, and during a pause in the singing, the musicians sent one of their number, who was a shy girl about eighteen years of age, who seemed as if she would rather that someone else do the task, amongst the crowd to make a collection. The girl was very nervous, and she blushed as she murmured her request and held out a straw hat, which evidently belonged to one of the male members of the glee party. A few of the men gave pennies. Some refused or pretended not to see either the girl or the hat, and others offered to give her some money for a kiss. But what caused the trouble was that two or three of those who had been drinking more than was good for them dropped the still-burning ends of their cigars, all wet with saliva, as it were, into the hat, and Dick Wantley spit into it. The girl hastily returned to her companions, and as she went, some of the men who had witnessed the behaviour of those who had insulted her advised them to make themselves scarce, as they stood a good chance of getting a thrashing from the girl's friends. They said it would serve them damn well right if they did get a hammering. Partly sobered by the fear, the three culprits sneaked off and hid themselves, pale and trembling with terror, under the box seats of the three brakes. They scarcely left when the men of the knee party came running up, furiously demanding to see those who had insulted the girl. As they could get no satisfactory answer, one of their number ran back and presently returned, bringing the girl with him. The other young women followed a little way behind. She said that she could not see the men that they were looking for, so they went down to the public house to see if they could find them, some of Rushton's men accompanying them and protesting their indignation.